According to new data, Chicago workers are among the most reluctant in the U.S. to return to the office. And it's time for our weekly conversation with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. A lot of second home buying comes from these very low interest rates or from stock market gains. So it may be that I was sitting at home in the spring at my house in Arlington Heights, Palatine, those kinds of places, and realizing uh, I've actually got a fair amount of extra affordability thanks to uh, interest rates. Let's see what I can get. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Thursday, November 12th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live, brought to you by Wintrust, here with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Hello, you're playing musical seats in your car today, Dennis. <laughs> I am. The sun moved. As soon as I got parked, the sun moved, and I would have been all washed out. So. Well, we can't have Rodkin in bad lighting. I'm in the back seat. I'm not being chauffeured. I'm actually <laughs> in the back seat of my own car. Doing a live stream from an Uber or something, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, lots to talk about today. Uh, let us start with a recent story you have about COVID-era amenities uh, and things people are adding to their homes to try to attract buyers right now. What is a COVID era amenity? Well, it would be uh, more outdoor space. It would be an open air um, entertainment and exercise space. I started calling around and it's interesting how many people are uh, thinking of doing things like this. Things as simple as uh, converting a first floor office into a classroom Uh, One family had done that in Glenview. They had done it for their own use. And then when getting ready to sell, they said to their agent, well, you know, we'll put office furniture back in. And she said, no, 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 don't do that. It looks like the sort of room people are going to need. And people don't often look at a listing and say, oh, that's an office I could make into a classroom. But if they look and say, oh, that's a classroom, they realize, hey, this could work. I found a builder in or a rehabber, I should say, in Logan Square, who ordinarily what you do with these older houses is you build off the back to add a new kitchen and family room. But in order to save a lot of yard space to have a big yard, this house is very close to the 606, but of course that was closed for quite a while this year and certainly could again if there's another pandemic. So rather than build out and eat up a lot of backyard, she built up, she lifted the roof and made a third floor where there had been an attic. Oh, and I mentioned an open air exercise space, family in Lincoln Park with an alley garage. They laid down a new epoxy floor on the on the floor of the garage. They cleaned it all out. They put up some exercise equipment. You roll the door open and then it's a, a place for them to work out. It's a place where they have entertained. The air is circulating. You've got a whole new entertainment pavilion just by cleaning and reflooring the garage. I'm waiting for a builder who does the new COVID house, but I think, of course, that will come, even though it feels like we've been in this crisis forever, it's been eight months. I think we may next spring see something that was designed with the the current lifestyle involved. 
Gosh, and here I am just trying to think of ways to keep using my balcony once it gets cold. I feel like I need to like step up my game. I'm just thinking like, oh, maybe I could put a little heater out there. No, I need to make an exercise center or something big. Yeah, I think so. It's it's really kind of interesting to see the things people have done and also the things that they haven't done. One of the great examples was there's a couple. Uh, these were also in Glenview, actually. They're empty nesters. They've owned the house for two or three decades, and it has a pool. And they always thought, well, you know, when we go to sell, we'll get rid of the pool. We liked having the pool. Our kids liked having a pool, but it'll be hard to sell with a pool. And then when this spring came around and it was COVID time, they realized actually a pool is a very good amenity. And those houses, houses with pools are selling faster than they ever did before. So rather than spend the money to fill in the pool, they left it. That house hasn't sold yet, but I expected that it would sell quickly. We will probably see it sell soon. Speaking of houses being sold, we've been talking a little bit about the edge of Lake Michigan, uh, Northwest Indiana and Southwest Michigan, that kind of area, and how we've seen a lot of people moving over there, maybe making that their permanent residence area. But you're also looking at Southern Wisconsin Lake Homes and seeing something similar. Tell me about this. Yeah. So this is another market that has been lifted by COVID. We've got sort of a list of them now. This one is a little bit different. This is the Walworth County area, the Lake Geneva, Lake Como, uh, Lauderdale Lakes area. Big uptick in buying in the second, in, I'm sorry, in the third quarter. Some of that was probably borrowed from the second quarter we saw in Chicago, real slowdown in spring, and then it moves into summer as if summer is the spring buying season. They had some of that, but they also, when you look at the numbers, were up quite a bit primarily with lakefront homes on some of those I named, Lake Geneva, Lake Como, the Lauderdale Lakes area, huge uptick in the number of homes sold there. And one of the things that seems to be true is that these are not necessarily people moving to get out of Chicago or the Chicago area permanently. They're buying second homes. They're close from the Northwest suburbs. It can be an hour or less to get to that area. And so let's use this as our pandemic time retreat and let's keep it as a second home for down the line if uh, things shut down again, that sort of thing. It's always been true that people buy second homes up there. And apparently it's been quite accelerated this year in large part because people need a place to get away much more than they ever did before. And maybe spending some of the money that might have gone toward vacation travel in Europe or, or that sort of thing. It's interesting, though, that you saw that in, in the third quarter, even though some of that could have been second quarter, but that seems like that would have hit a little earlier. So it's curious to me that that started to hit after we saw the Northwest Indiana, Southern Michigan area start to hit. Well, I think part of it is uh, that the, the report, the organization doing the reporting is a little later than the others. But it also may be true. Um, a lot of second home buying comes from these very low interest rates or from stock market gains. So it may be that I was sitting at home in the spring at my house in Arlington Heights, Palatine, those kinds of places, and realizing I've actually got a fair amount of extra money that I wouldn't, or extra affordability thanks to uh, interest rates. Let's see what I can get. So I think it might have been a little bit of delayed shopping because first I had to realize what I could do. Buying a second home is a more intimidating than buying a first in some cases. Very interesting. It'll be interesting to keep an eye on both of those kind of lakefront areas and see what continues to happen, especially through the winter. As it gets cold, it'll be interesting to see. My hunch is you get there by the time it gets cold and you hunker down and 
Yeah, I don't I don't foresee anyone like buying a house in the middle of the winter there, but who knows? I could be wrong. If you're a cross country skier or something like that. So I, I could see people maybe in smaller numbers, but buying up there. Let's shift completely and talk a little bit about the Emmett Till Museum and how that has just inched a little bit closer to happening. Looks like it may actually become a museum, which is wonderful. The two flat where Emmett Till and his mother Mamie lived at the time that he was murdered, that was their home address. He was murdered, of course, in Mississippi while visiting relatives in the summer of 1955. His mother continued to live in this home, but as most people know, it was his mother's decision to have an open casket funeral for him here in Chicago that really was a spark for the civil rights movement because the world saw just how brutalized his body had been by the white racists who killed him. The whole building was her family. It's a two flat that later had a third unit put in the basement. It's gone through several ownership changes over the last few years. I've written about a few of them. There have been, over the course of the past 20 years, several efforts to landmark, never much cooperation from owners, always sort of came and went. Well, in September, the organization Blacks in Green bought it from the most recent uh, residential owner, which was a rehabber who had bought it in 2019. We talked about how they bought it. They didn't really realize what they had. There's this effort to landmark it. So two things have happened recently. First of all, they did sell it to Blacks in Green, which is the organization that wants to make it not only a museum dedicated to what happened to Emmett Till, but a museum about the Great Migration and its effects in uh, Chicago and the nation. So they bought this from the rehabber. Don't yet know the price. They wouldn't divulge it, and it's not in public records yet. But she says that they bought it for more than that rehabber had paid for it. So, you know, good deal for the rehabber. And the last step before full city council approval of landmarking the building happened just last week. So it's speeding ahead toward becoming not only a landmark, but a museum. Uh, The Blacks and Green woman uh, also told me that they're trying to buy the two lots to the north, which are empty. And one is owned by city agencies, one by county agencies. Seems very likely they'll get cooperation. And then we will have uh, right there on South St. Lawrence, a few blocks from where Emmett Till went to school, a monument or a memorial both to him and to the effects of the Great Migration on Chicago. This could take a few years, but they expect to do their first programming, even if they haven't rehabbed the house by February, they expect to do their first programming in the house uh, in February, Black History Month. Well, wow. that was my next question of kind of what, what happens next. And that's very exciting. I don't know. It seemed like it was such a far away goal for such a long time, but suddenly it seems like uh, all systems go. Well, I think one good thing is she was able to buy it with cash. First of all, she's buying it for more than they paid. And if you have to get a mortgage, et cetera, the, the rehabber may say, yeah, no, but they were able to buy it with cash. And the next step is also going to be, she's assembling a board of um, sort of people who will advise on programming, on the rehab, that sort of thing. And it was very tantalizing because she said, I promise you will be very excited when you hear some of those names. So I have some names I'm hoping to hear, but we may within the next several weeks uh, hear that some stellar people are involved in rehabbing this building. Oh, I can't wait to hear who's on the board. That's going to be super interesting. Well, we will hear it from you when the time comes. All right. Let's talk about some uh, developers that have teamed up to build affordable townhomes in East Garfield Park. This is quite innovative, as Alderman Burnett described it to me. Under the city's affordability 
ordinances, developers in hot neighborhoods who get certain city guarantees are obligated to build affordable units in certain other parts of the city. That's not everything they have to do. They also have to have some affordable units in their project, but you need to build some on the west side, the south side in certain areas. And several developers are doing that. Here are two who are essentially doing it together. Um, one developer uh, who's developing a, a, a parcel at um, on Halstead Street in Lincoln Park needed to put in, needed to create about 10, I think 15 affordable units, bought a parcel at Harrison and Francisco that will take 50. So they enlisted another developer who is building in the West Loop and needs to build about four. And essentially four of those 50 will be for that developer. They'll look for another developer to take more. So instead of each of us sort of dropping our small number of affordable units in different spots around the West Side, you get this, uh, or we hope you will get, we hope all 50 get built. Um, we get this nice cluster of 50, which is a nice big footprint that can really help be an anchor for change for a community. They're affordable. They're built to be affordable housing. They're built to sell at about 229, which um, $229,000, which is good for that neighborhood. And they're three bedroom, they're nice new construction. It should be, uh, if it all comes to pass, it should be a real nice sort of as I said, kind of cluster that can have an effect on the future of that neighborhood. Yeah. What's the timeline on that? Some are finishing now. They're, they're finishing the first one within the next week or two. Those are for sale. And then the second and third phases aren't yet definitely planned because they have to get the, uh, they have to get sales made and they have to get other developers um, lined up. But it should take two or three years to get all 50 of these built and sold. Okay. So let's move to a Lake Forest house. We talked about Lake Forest last week about how it was not really a hot thing for a while. And then suddenly it was a hot thing, but there's a particular house. It is the great, great grandson of Marshall Field who had a house there. Tell me about this one. Who also is named Marshall Field. Yeah, he's Marshall Field the fifth and his estate is quite lush. Um, he's owned it for about 40 years. I don't know exactly how long, Neither he nor his real estate agent, uh, I couldn't reach him and his real estate agent didn't respond to my calls. Um, Marshall Field V and his wife, Jamie, bought this sometime around 1980. He's now in his late 70s. Jamie Field recently died. Uh, he also has a home in Florida. And so he put this very lovely estate in Lake Forest on the market. It's 15 acres. If you're looking at the photo, you can see it's got this expanse of land with a pond, there's a greenhouse. The house itself was built by Howard Van Doren Shaw, who was one of the great early 20th century architects of country mansions. Uh, it was built for an interesting character. And then in, again, in 1980, um, Marshall Field V gets it. And at that time, he was the head of Field Enterprises. No longer, the, the family was no longer involved in retailing. The Marshall Field family got out of the Marshall Field chain in 1965. But uh, then they have Field Enterprises, which among many other things, owned the Sun-Times and the Chicago American as well. And uh, he was the publisher. Uh, in 1965, at age 24, he became the publisher of those two papers. As I understand it, he was the youngest publisher of any big city paper in America. 
and then and then buys this house in 1980. And in 1983, he and his uh, half brother Ted Field sell off the newspapers. The Sun Times goes to Rupert Murdoch, and a lot has happened since then. It's been sold and resold many times. But this is the home he was living in. A very, I mean, it's really spectacular. It's uh, again, it's Howard Van Doren Shaw who built really sumptuous country gentleman kind of houses. And uh, one of the things I love is this uh, living room ceiling, which is it's a barrel vaulted ceiling with plaster ribs. It looks like something you might make today, but it was made in 1910. More often what you see is the sort of tracery and framework uh, of plaster that makes it look uh, more old world. I just think this is really fabulous and nice wood throughout the house, great big rooms, really built for the, you know, we are the barons out from the city living here on our country estate. This is the living room, which has windows on two sides so that you're looking out to the on the grounds to the north, which is sort of a long formal driveway from the stone gates. And you're looking out to the, I'm sorry, that would have been east, the front yard. And you're also looking out west, the backyard, over formal gardens and down a slope toward a, a pond with a bridge over it. I mean, you really would feel I am the master of all I survey sitting in this house. Oh, surely. In this red room here that we're looking at, I mean, that's definitely like the drawing room. You know, I can't go a single episode without talking about Downton Abbey and how I want to live that life. Yeah, this is this is this is from the real heyday of Lake Forest. I mean, it's got so many names attached. Not only is the Marshall Field family name attached, but Howard Van Doren Shaw and the landscape, the architect and the landscape was by Jens Jensen, who was one of the great um, originators of Midwestern landscape architecture. Uh, it really, this, this house has quite a bit going for it. Yeah. And a lot of really beautiful detail. You know, that's what I really love about these old houses that you, that you write about. They, you just get to see this like very high level of crafts, craftsmanship and detail in the houses. And, and that's been preserved really well in this one. Yeah, but you know, the phrase they don't build them like that anymore definitely applies to a house like this. This when you build when you were building in 1910, you had teams of tradespeople coming in and working for months and money was no object. Now, building something like this is is more of a challenge. Um and Amy, I've actually I wasn't in the house for this story. It just came on the market yesterday and I had to get the story out quickly and as I said, the real estate agent wouldn't talk to me. But I've been in this house about 15 years ago. Uh, maybe a little more, Jamie Field, I mentioned the uh, the wife of Marshall Field V, uh, had some landscape design done, and I was writing a story about that. And she walked me through the house, and she actually showed me the room where her husband, she said, would you like to see the room where my husband ties his fly fishing ties? <laughs> and so I actually saw the room upstairs where Marshall Field V tied fly fishing flies. I was sort of starstruck at that moment. Yeah. Did you get to see inside the greenhouse? Because I'm not going to lie. That's right where my eyes went in that aerial shot. I don't think I was in that greenhouse. I have I have been in some Lake Forest greenhouses, but I haven't been in this one. I like a good greenhouse. All right. Next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, let's talk about a mansion that is in Burr Ridge. This is a very curious uh, mansion to me. It sells at a multi-million dollar loss. Keyword, Again. Yeah. Very interesting. Tell me about this one. This one has been in the news now for a dozen years. A dentist built it. It's right. At, it's in Burr Ridge. It's right at the corner of Plainfield and County Line Road on a site that looks like people, when it was going up, people thought it was a school. 
because it's huge and it's on the corner of two busy streets. It was not a school. It was a single family home built to be extremely lavish. Uh, the family never moved in. What the man said at the time was that he had built it as a gift for his wife and she didn't like it. So they never moved in. There may have been other circumstances, but that's what that's at least what he told. So he had it on the market at $25 million back in, I think it's 2009. Uh, eventually lost it in foreclosure. The investors and the price came down and down and down. The investors who bought it, as far as I could tell, paid about $4 million less than the total mortgage. The mortgage was about $8 million. They bought it, uh, I'm sorry, it was about $6.5 million. They bought it for uh, three. So they bought it at multiple million dollars off the mortgage. We don't know how much went into the house. All we know is the mortgage price. He said he spent $18 million to build it. We, we don't have any documentation of that. So if you just go with the first mortgage, uh, they lost about $4 million, the, the foreclosing lenders did when they sold it. And they sold it to people who then did a massive rehab. There was once a huge flood that was big news in this house. The basement was flooded with something like 50,000 gallons of water. News stories claimed that a buyer or a vandal or who knows had done it. None of that was ever proven. I'm sorry, a seller or a vandal. None of that was ever proven. Um, but it was flooded when the investors bought it. They put several million more into it. When they had it on the market for $7 million a few years ago, their agent told me that was how much they had in it. And they sold it for $3 million. So as far as I can tell, the total losses on this house total at least $7.5 million. Probably are far greater because, again, we don't actually know what he spent. And it's only been lived in for about a year in the entire 12 years it's been finished. That's so curious to me. I mean, that's I, I don't even know what to say to that. And look at that. That picture of that house, this library room we're looking at, I mean, that looks like a, a catalog photo. It's very beautiful. Yeah. It's a gorgeous house inside. I mean... It is. I mean, it has some challenges. Like, you, you've got this two-story foyer. It really does feel like a school in a lot of ways because you've got this giant two-story foyer with a colonnade all around. Um, it's not the kind of foyer where you put like a vase of this, yeah. where you put just a vase of flowers and say, hi, welcome to my house. I mean, how do you furnish this, which has this grand staircase going up and a giant uh, skylight overhead? It, I mean, it, it, at one point, the village of Burr, or I'm sorry, the real estate agent was trying to get the village of Burr Ridge to accept uh, commercial use of this building because she thought that might be the way to get it sold. And you can see why when you look mm -hmm. at the interior. The only confirmation I have uh, from, from the uh, real estate agent for this buyer is that it will stay in residential use. It's not a hotel or a school or anything like that. But we don't know anything else about the buyers, only that they are residential users of it. That is fascinating. I mean, this story had me at, he built it for his wife and she didn't like it. <laughs> Start there. He built it for his wife to the tune of $18 million and she didn't like it. Yeah. yeah. It's one thing of like, here, I got you a, I don't know, a, a necklace. Mm, I don't really yeah. love it. I'm going to exchange it. No, it's a giant house that a lot of money went into. <laughs> so find a yeah. way to like it for at least a minute. When it was nearly done, he invited me to see it. This is back in 2008. And I met him in the front yard. It's a long story why I never actually got inside. But he was beaming with pride and, and you know, sort of saying, look at what we have done. He was, I mean, obviously, if you've done something like this, You've thought long and hard about what you want. You've really designed it to the, to the nth degree. And he was quite proud of it. 
Um, he has since left Chicago practices, as I understand now, in San Diego. But you have to wonder what kind of remorse you feel for having done something like this. And as you said, your wife didn't like it. And you also lost quite a pile of money on it. Yeah. I mean, in her defense, maybe maybe check in with your spouse before you go and build an entire house. Maybe. I Just... don't know if it was a surprise. It took a couple <laughs> years to build. I think she might have had some idea it was sure. coming. Let us move to Mrs. O'Leary's son. Mrs. O'Leary, of course, her cow is quite famous here uh, in this city anyway, but her son built a Garfield Boulevard mansion. Tell me about this place because this house is so incredible. It is. It's wild. And while we're looking at these pictures, we should uh, point out something that Lynn Becker, the architecture blogger, has pointed out. If you look at the uppermost uh, reaches of the house, it looks as if those two big bays are M-shaped and there's a round one in the middle. So he calls it the house that says mom, that refers to Mrs. O'Leary, which whether it was designed that way, we don't know, but it looks like this is a tribute to his mother. There And there is actually in the carvings, there is one figure that looks like a cow. So uh, James O'Leary, a son of Mrs. O'Leary, and by the way, Mrs. O'Leary's cow was not guilty. That's right. They were officially proclaimed not guilty by the Chicago City Council in the 1990s. But about 20 years after the fire, James O'Leary has become very wealthy. He's He runs a gambling operation right outside the stockyards. He was known as the gambling king of the Chicago stockyards. He will go on to have a gambling boat on Lake Michigan and a picnic grove and all and a gambling operation out in DuPage County. He's got money. And he builds this 33-room mansion on Garfield Boulevard. It is almost certainly, though not 100% confirmed, designed by Zachary Davis, who designed both the old Comiskey Park and Wiegman Field, which became Wrigley Field, obviously attached to some big institutions in Chicago. The house has been owned by the same woman since the early 1990s. I believe it was vacant for several years before she bought it. It's not in very good condition inside. They're asking just a little under $600,000. They're offering it as a rehab prospect, maybe turn it into condos uh, or turn it into one giant fabulous house, but it needs work inside. The, the listing photos of the inside showed worn out staircases and a lot of uh, plaster falling off the ceilings, that sort of thing. Again, they've been in there for nearly 30 years. They bought it for a song and now the price really is for the exterior. The price is really, you'd be buying this shell and redoing the entire inside. Pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, to be able to have that, if you had the money then to put into it, to fix it up, to bring it back up to its glory days, 600000 for that house with that kind of pedigree attached to it, that's not bad. I mean, that's pretty, that's kind of exciting. I hope someone who wants to really put in the work takes this house and really does something and, and lovingly restores it. That would be beautiful to see. I think that would be wonderful. I, I, given its location, I think what's most likely is that it gets divided. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could divide it into two, just right down the middle, or possibly four units. Just given that where it is, there's there's not a lot of this scale. There's nothing like this left on that on that immediate stretch of Garfield Boulevard. So I think it's pretty likely that it gets divided up, though. Who knows? Oh, and by the way, it would be one more unit than what I just described because I forgot to say there's a coach house out back. So if you divide it in two, you may actually be selling three units, one, two in the building and, and one out back in the coach house. And that seems to me to be the most likely outcome, but we'll see. I'd yeah. love to see 
it restored as a single family home as you would. Let us take a look inside this house in Glen Ellen. The minute I saw this story on the Crane's website, I sent Dennis a message and I was like, oh, we are talking about this on Thursday. There are many details. There is one concerning the staircase that really caught my eye, but tell me about this house before we go there. You know, what's interesting is, unlike, for instance, unlike the, the O'Leary mansion we just talked about, there's a lot of detail that is missing from the origin of the house. We don't know who built it. We don't know who the architect was. We know whoever they were, they really had a flair for the dramatic. This is, this is the living room with turned pillars and this carved plaster mantelpiece. Um, there's heraldry. Actually, that's, yeah, that is original heraldry up above. Um, it, and it just goes on from here. There are, uh, there's a plaque of St. George slaying the dragon in the dining room. There's this, which you liked, the staircase. I think this looks like a staircase out of a movie theater with yeah. all that plaster wrapping all around the balconies. And this goes up two stories. This goes on forever. And it's got all these sort of bas reliefs on it. And your favorite detail, carpet on the banisters. I, I did a double take when I saw it. I was like, oh, a pink banister. Hold on. Is that velvet? Is that carpet? Yeah. I better send Dennis a message. And here we are. I've never seen and, that on a house before. Well, you know, and the sellers are interested. The sellers uh, who bought it in the 1980s when it was pretty run down, um, had had longtime owners, was empty at the time they bought it. They really wanted to restore it and they wanted to keep it period correct. And she told me, uh, we really wouldn't be the kind of people to have red carpet in our foyer and, and on our banisters, but that's what had been there. So they tried to sort of honor that. And you can see, I mean, this feels, you can see this figuring into, it was built in 1932, figuring into a 1930s movie, right? You come slinking down those stairs in some silk dress with like a high, uh, a cosmopolitan, a highball, something in your hand, or a very long handled cigarette. This is designed to feel like the glamour of the 1930s. So they kept it, or they, uh, they didn't keep the old carpet. They put in replacement carpet that looked like what had been there. That's yeah, so but carpeted handrail, carpeted um, handrails is pretty unusual. Yeah, I mean, I even went. I, I spent probably more time than you would think I would devote to it, thinking about how to actually put carpet on a handrail. I was like, okay, well, you'd have to like wrap it around, staple the back. Like, how would you even do that? Moving on, Guth, but still, yeah, this is exactly. But there's a lot of cool details that have been. Um, you're exactly right. Whoever did this had a flair for the dramatic these columns everywhere are just look at this bathroom the bathroom oh, yeah. kills me this is and th this is original there there's an old sales brochure again they don't know who built the house but they do have a brochure from when it was for sale in the 40s or 50s and this bathroom was in there then uh this is <laughs> this bathtub just kills me i mean i am going back to that 1930s movie i imagine somebody's in this bathtub with um uh, soap bubbles all the way up. You know, you don't want to do anything indecent. It's 1932. So right. soap bubbles all the way up to the chin and maybe a glass of champagne in this tub, which has, it's got, you know, essentially the headboard of a bed behind it. Um, you can just imagine some Nick and Nora scene happening in here. Once again, she said, you know, we aren't really the kind of people who, who have a bathroom like this, but you have to keep that when you find it in the house. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's quite a bathroom. And then there's like carpet around that. This ceiling that's almost like this Tudor style situation going on in this dining hall. This another very dramatic room here. 
Yeah, and those beams, you can't quite tell from the photo, but the beams are all carved with bas-reliefs, a lot like the staircase railing. And then that uh, St. George and the Dragon that I mentioned is at the far end of the room over the door. There's a little Juliet balcony. That balcony in the dining room absolutely killed me when I saw that because the only thing you can do with that is walk out and make some dramatic proclamation to your guests. That's it. That's the only thing you can do with that. You can just walk out. You can maybe like hit a dinner bell or the gong or you make a little announcement. You are all disinherited. (laughs) I've taken you all from my will. That's it. And then you slam the door and walk away. That's all you can do. And then you go back into your bathtub filled with (laughs) soap bubbles all the way up to the tub, up to the gym. Interesting color scheme in this one, too. I feel like normally in this age of house, we see a little bit darker colors, but the pastels are, that looks a little more 50s to me. I think they sort of turned it up because they were going with the color of the mosaic tile in the floor. That entire floor, they've put down a carpet, but that entire floor is mosaic tile. And one of the cool, so this was the ballroom and on the, uh, off the uh, left side of the picture, there's so much room that they have a pool table. Um, You come down on another grand staircase and off to the right with those two arched doorways next flanking the fireplace open to is that's where the orchestra would sit. So you're in the ballroom with an orchestra in the next room playing uh, as you come flouncing down the stairs. Well, I think that goes without saying that's the orchestra nook, obviously. (laughs) Of course, everybody has one. (laughs) And that's why it kills me that we don't know much about the origin of the house. We don't know who this was. He appears to have been in the railroad industry, unconfirmed. But this is clearly somebody who wanted a very particular kind of a house. I wish more detail was available about it because I'm sure there's an excellent backstory. Oh, there's got to be. There's got to be one. We'll we'll find it. You just want a Nick and Nora story to have happened there, don't you? Absolutely. 100% I do. All right. Well, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? Uh, Well, one of the things coming up is um, later today, I'm going to have a story on a modernist architect's house that has been re-modernized. And it's going to be another one where you and I sort of gawk this time next week. Uh, And we're also, uh, next week, we will get the October sales report for the entire region. Uh, Prices are up nationwide. Prices have, uh, according to the National Association of Realtors, prices have been growing faster than at any time in about 10 years. And I think what we'll find for our location specifically is something similar. You probably remember the uh, September data that came out in late October was really positive. And I think the October data that will come out next week will be even more so. All right. Well, we will look forward to talking with you next next week this time. Thanks so much to you, Dennis Rodkin, and to Deputy Digital Editor Sarah Zimmerman, who produced the live stream from the virtual control room. And of course, to Wintrust, our sponsor. Coming up, the Illinois Restaurant Association launches a social media push to blast Governor Pritzker's restriction on indoor dining. We'll talk more about that and more right after this. Thompson Coburn LLP is a national law firm whose Chicago attorneys have represented some of Chicago's largest public and privately held companies in a variety of corporate and litigation legal matters. Thompson Coburn attorneys deliver exceptional legal guidance to publicly and closely held businesses, financial institutions, and sole and family proprietorships across nearly every major industry and business sector. Thompson Coburn is all about total commitment to its clients, its people, and its community. Remember, 
that your business deserves legal advisors and litigators who are totally committed to your success. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. According to a report from Castle Systems International, a provider of access control systems, workers in the Chicago area are among the most reluctant to go back to the office among those in major U.S. regions. And by contrast, employers in major Texas cities saw the highest numbers of workers coming back. The so-called Castle Return to Work Barometer tabulates keycard and FOB office access data from 3,600 buildings and 41,000 businesses in 47 states. The data from 10 Ten large U.S. metro areas are then compiled to create a 10-city average. Only about a quarter of workers among all 10 cities returned to the office last week. The gauge fell from just over 27% on October 28th to just over 25% on November 4th, which is the lowest since early September. The steepest decline in the latest week was in the Chicago area, where the building occupancy rate fell to 16.2%. Now, Chicago was up there, but New York City had the least amount of workers in buildings overall, with only 13.1% of workers back in the office during that week. Dallas remained the most open city in the barometer, with about 41% of workers back in the office. As one of the state's hardest hit by COVID-19 right now, Illinois is getting the largest shipment this week of a newly authorized COVID-19 antibody therapy. The state is getting almost 6,400 doses of Eli Lilly's bamlanivimab, which is being used for the treatment of certain COVID-19 patients who are at risk for developing severe symptoms. Because the supply of the drug is limited, the federal government is allocating doses to states each week based on their case counts and hospitalizations. As such, Illinois is getting 8% of the more than 79,000 total vials, that according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Texas is getting the next largest shipment with nearly 5,800 vials. The FDA on Monday granted emergency use authorization for the drug. The federal government has purchased 300,000 doses of the IV drug for 375 million, Eli Lilly said last month. Under the agreement, the government has the option to purchase up to an additional 650,000 vials through the end of June of next year. The drug maker also said that it expects to manufacture up to 1 million doses of bamlanivimab by the end of the year for use around the world. Beginning in early 2021, they said supply is expected to increase substantially as additional manufacturing resources come online throughout the year. While the federal government said Americans will have no out-of-pocket costs for the medicine, healthcare facilities may charge a fee to administer the drug. And related to COVID treatments, COVID vaccines. Passenger jets will be able to transport coronavirus vaccines at the required ultra-low temperatures as long as they're stored in specially made containers. That according to Europe's biggest cargo-only airline. No plane, not even a freighter built just for that purpose, would otherwise be able to keep vaccines at the minus 112 degree Fahrenheit specified by Pfizer. That according to Cargolux Airlines International's CEO. And that would make shipment and custom design boxes the only viable option, he said, going on to say the container itself can remain at ambient temperatures because it's protected on the inside. He also said all the passenger aircraft in the world will be mobilized to transport these vaccines. Pfizer and German partner BioNTech delivered the most promising news yet about a potential COVID-19 vaccine earlier this week when a study showed their product prevented more than 90 percent of symptomatic infections in the trial of tens of thousands of volunteers. While it's still in 
in clinical trials, attention's already turning to how a vaccine, once proven, can be manufactured and transported at the quantities needed to inoculate most of the world. And one potential obstacle may be that bottlenecks appear just about everywhere in the supply chain, according to the CargoLux CEO, especially since Pfizer said the box carrying the vaccine will have only a 10-day lifespan and can be opened no more than twice for a maximum period of one minute at a time, he added. Noting, quote, the most important thing is the last mile, getting it to the hospital or clinic where it's going to be used. Find more detail on this story as well as many others at chicagobusiness.com. The Illinois Restaurant Association has launched a new social media campaign telling followers that Illinois is the only state to shut down indoor dining. And it's the latest move in the association's struggle to help restaurants survive the pandemic. Governor J.B. Pritzker placed a restriction against indoor dining in the Chicago area late last month after a surge in COVID case numbers, and restaurants have been speaking out against that decision ever since. Most states and some cities do have indoor dining restrictions in place, but Illinois is the only state that has completely shut it down, according to research by restaurant reservation platform Open Table, with its data last updated on November 6th. However, Pritzker's spokesperson tweeted in response to the group's tweet, quote, this tweet just isn't true. Not only is indoor dining closed in other places now, but this has been true in various states for months as they've grappled with increasing positivity. And for example, San Francisco just announced that it will halt indoor dining starting on Friday. In an Instagram post on Tuesday, the association made an argument that many restaurant operators have been echoing lately, that closing indoor dining could force people out of restaurants that are highly regulated in terms of health and safety and make them gather instead inside people's homes. The original post from the group said, quote, we have done everything asked of us and more. No one operates more safely. Continuing, we must be allowed to serve indoors in some capacity. Otherwise, our state's largest private sector employer will be pushed to the brink of permanent devastation. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.